1: You're listening to a special episode of the TLS podcast, and as well as, rather than instead of, our normal weekly show. Here, our fiction editor Toby Lishtig speaks to George Saunders about his sensational new novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. And that's fair use of sensational given the critical swooning surrounding its publication. You'll find exclusive extracts from the novel, along with accompanying readings featuring a cast of celebrity fans, on our website. Toby's first question to Saunders was why he decided to introduce a supernatural element to an otherwise simple tale about President Lincoln mourning his dead son, Willie.
2: Years ago, I had written another novel, in quotes, that was set in an upstate New York graveyard. And it was sort of inspired by the early chat lines, you know, the way that you'd have these kind of, kind of interrupted uh, misspelled, uh, agramatical narratives. Uh, so I have that kind of in in my mind. There was also in the middle there, a play that I tried to write that had the ghost in there. So I think, I mean, I think the short answer is that given the subject matter of Lincoln being in a graveyard alone, you just needed a narrator other than Lincoln. That, that would be a big, big buzzkill to try to narrate from Lincoln's point of view. You know, it's funny when you talk about the way ideas evolve, uh, when you're talking professionally about it, you tend to oversimplify. But in reality, there were probably three or four different strands going on at over 15 years that that led me to do it that way.
1: And so, had, the, has the, had this novel been in your head for about 15 years or so?
2: Twenty-ish. Yeah. Wow. It was just we had heard that I had seen that crypt uh, back in the Bill Clinton era, actually. That you know the crypt at Oak Hill, and i had been told that Lincoln had entered there, and I. And that's the crypt, that's that's that the crypt where he, his
1: son was was interned.
2: Right, and you yeah. can actually see it from a fairly main road in DC. You know, at that time, it was one of those ideas that felt like someone should be able to write it, but I didn't I didn't think it was me. It was a little too earnest at that time for my, you know, my bag of tricks. So I just kept kind of pushing it off, and whenever I felt kind of artistically happy, that idea would present again, like, hello, are you, you know, are you ready for me? Uh, so it was only in 2012 that I thought, I still didn't think I was quite ready, but I felt like kind of, you know, now or never. And it also felt... A bit like an artistic crossroads. Like if I didn't try it, I would somehow have conceded the rest of my life being repetitious. You know that.
1: <laughs> right.
2: You know. You know. If somebody somebody really wonderful comes along, you kind of halfway fall in love with her, but you think you're not not up to it. So. If you say no, then you're that guy, you know.
1: It was now or never.
2: It was now or never. Given my advanced age, I didn't, <laughs> and I didn't want to be the person who goes to his grave and finds that the stone says, "Decline to do that which you must long to do."
1: And the novel itself, uh, when we were approached, with the girl was is, is anything um, but earnest. I mean, it's fantastically playful. So it was obviously the right time to write it. And perhaps had you tried that twenty years ago, it may, it may have ended up being the wrong kind of novel.
2: No, that's exactly right. You know, you, you, the work of art has always an implicit problem. That's what helps you finish it. So in this case, the awareness that it might be too earnest, you know, forced me to bring in other valences. But I think there was a lot of, you know, it's funny, I hadn't thought of this in a while, but about seven years ago, I did a nonfiction piece where I went to live in a homeless camp in in Fresno, California, kind of incognito. And uh, so much of that uh, helped me write this book because it was in some ways a similar platform. It was a, it was a confined space. It was an old train yard that was actually fenced in. Uh, a small cast of characters, and one of the things that was really similar was that the people in the camp felt bad about being there, and they tended to justify their presence there with these sort of repetitive narratives. And it only occurred to me in the last few days how much of that is in, in this book.
1: And is. perhaps they've been sort of thrown together there with, without too much sense of volition either. Maybe it was a sort of a, a place that had brought them together, but they weren't natural bedfellows. Was that also part of there?
2: Exactly right. And kind of this, there was a tendency to repeat two or three narratives. And the, and the point was often to distinguish that individual from the other people there. Everyone else was there for good reason, but they were there exceptionally. But it's, it's interesting the way these things kind of create a work of art. I mean, I think... In, in this phase, when we're trying to articulate where a work came from, it tends to be, you know, we look for the simple answer, but I can name six or seven things that, that have been happening over the last 15 years that kind of led into this book in a funny way.
1: And, and what was it about the image of Abraham Lincoln and his in his recently deceased son Willie in, in particular then that kind of allowed these ideas to coalesce?
2: Well, I mean, the truth is I'm not sure. It was, it was the um, longevity of that. Image. It was sort of just beautiful, haunting, but mostly it was just, it kept coming back to me. I, you know, I would, I would sort of push it away, and uh, at odd moments I would just, it, it felt like a bit like a portal into some kind of beauty I hadn't been able to access yet. But the, uh, the symptom of that was just that, you know, every time I'd have some little artistic victory, part of me would say, okay, this is what you want to try next. So, I mean, I could reduce it and say, at the moment I heard about that story, there was a kind of a melding of the Pieta and Lincoln Memorial that appeared in my mind, and I don't usually think visually. It was also, you know, I was a young father myself at that point. Also, some, this is during the Clinton scandal year, so it was a little bit mind-blowing that Lincoln could and would make his way out of the White House alone. So all of those were kind of contributory things, but I've learned over the years that there's a certain feeling that I get from an image or an idea or vague notion. Uh, and it's kind of, um, it feels like bounty. There's, there's some kind of promise of verbal overflow in that mode. Uh, and it's often not c- conceptual or thematic. It's just something, um, you know, a, uh, a feeling that is intriguing and, and promises that if you turn your mind to it, there'll be a lot there to work from. So, I mean, you know, the the skills that a writer accrues over the years are pretty pathetic, really, but but one of them is just that sense of being able to distinguish between two ideas uh, and know that this one is going to be fruitful for reasons that you... Can't quite understand yet,
1: and, and maybe don't even need to understand. Maybe that's the job of critics. <laughs> yes,
2: in fact, I would say you try—you have to try to resist the urge to understand, it, right. Because when you understand it, you tend to, you know, over control it in a certain way.
1: I mean, it's set during the obviously with Abraham Lincoln. It's set during the Civil War, um, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to notice that your your first ever collection um, of stories was called "Civil Warland," which is set to the title story of which is set in a Civil War theme park, uh, which is populated by ghosts. Um, And I just wondered if there was something about the way the Civil War still haunts America today that you keep coming back to as well.
2: The Civil War is also in that category of ideas that just light me up for some reason. I don't really know why. But I will say the more I read in it, the more I realized that that war never ended, actually. You know, you can see it here now in this Trump stuff. You can see it here in the the racial inequity that we have. So the, the, the short version is the Civil War ended slavery and then did nothing whatsoever to address the, you know, the economic situation of the former slaves. So in that way, it's, all, it's very much alive here. And I think the, um, somehow you know, the, the basic divisions of that war are still in place. And the way Lincoln said it approximately was that you know, there are people who are willing to eat the fruit that someone else grew. And I think that's still the case here. There's there's quite a strange division even now. So the the book was finished before this Trump stuff started, but it just feels kind of uh, it, it, it sort of felt like it was coming out of uh, out of that division for sure.
1: Yeah, and, and the division which itself has you know created the, the polit- political circumstance of the day. Um, yes. do do you think that's something that's, that's appreciated enough in the states? The kind of the effect of this war. I mean, do people talk about it enough for your liking?
2: Well, I think most people talk about it in a sort of nostalgic sense. You know, this heroic um, time when we finally, you know, refuted slavery. But, but I think the idea of the botched reconstruction is not understood here as much as uh, it should be. Uh, you know, in other words, the, the, the slaves were freed and given absolutely zero Despite the billions of dollars of value that they that they've made here, it's kind of a "Gone with the Wind" idea, maybe that. Um, although I will say, there's a there's a wonderful documentary, uh, James Baldwin documentary called "I Am Not Your Negro" that's m- getting a lot of attention here, and that really seems to have done a lot to um, to sort of wake up, the, especially the younger generation to. to what has actually happened here over the last, you know, 3 300 years.
1: So the tide of consciousness is perhaps changing a little bit.
2: You got to hope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I guess we've thought we thought that before. You know? <laughs> but I mean this is one of the things about this book that, you know, as a uh, as a middle-aged dude, you know, the the pull to history is pretty strong. Working on this book and then following it right away with some reporting on the Trump campaign, it kind of made me uh, I guess just newly aware of the fragility of America and the fact that for all of our talk, we never really have done what we said we were going to do in the Constitution. So there's a feeling in me, and I think generally here, of of kind of uh, a renewed awareness of democracy. In other words, my generation probably completely took it for granted. And in the younger generation now, they're very alive with political thought. And uh, I, I think it's a pretty amazing time to be here right now. The, so many things that seemed taken for granted are now suddenly really being looked at
1: for the first time. Well, that actually, that leads nicely into a question I wanted to ask about about goodness and the notion of the collective good, which I think you definitely approach in the book. Um, and, you know, you've got these wonderfully idiosyncratic ghosts um, who in death have become even more idiosyncratic, um, sort of sprouting eyes in one case or wandering around in a cumbersome state of arousal in another but but they eventually all come together to perform a collective task which I won't give away for those listeners who haven't read the book yet but it's a collective task to help someone and you've described this plot line as arguing for a viral theory of goodness um, which is something I'm very intrigued about so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that
2: The one thing is that that wasn't part of the design of the book but it kind of happened through revision so it was a surprise to me as well and it also implies the opposite a viral nature of evil my thought is that the book sort of shows and maybe argues for the idea that the smallest action actually has a great deal of import since that small action could be multiplied by uh, you know, a factor of thousands or a million. And I'm feeling that here right now in the States. you know, we The way things are going, there's so much craziness going on at the top with Trump and so on. And uh, I think people are starting to realize that the only way to fight that is by each person resisting at the 95% level in whatever his or her flavor is. So in other words, there's, there's a little frustration that the, uh, the media is somehow not quite equipped to fight this thing. Uh, they're trying, but, but there's a kind of a strange insularity between the power and the media that's frustrating when you're on the ground. But as was seen like in that women's march, the one thing this administration seems to respond to is any downturn in its popularity. So I think people are feeling strangely empowered, and this viral nature of goodness seems to be part of it. If each of us decides to resist and not become inattentive to resistance during the course of the day, it actually seems to be making a difference. And so paradoxically, it's I think it's making people feel more empowered and more um, alert to the real idea of democracy, which is the the individual consciousness actually actually matters, but as as a trope, as a fictional trope, you know, it's, it was just one of those those things that appears late in a project that you've been deeply inside of for a long time. And I kind of looked up one day to go, oh, that's interesting. You know, all these people are the ghosts in this book have they're a bit like longtime city dwellers. You know, they're a little cynical, uh, a little selfish, uh, and at, at certain moments in the book, each of them sort of comes alive out of that and then contributes to this this effect that you're talking about. But it was to- totally accidental and kind of spontaneous.
1: And, I mean, now that that's that's happened, I mean, as a, as a writer, as a fiction writer, as opposed to a, a journalist or, or, or an American or a human being, do you feel compelled now more than ever to kind of engage with that concept of goodness? I mean, is it is it how, you know, do, do, do novels need to be moral and do they need to... to, to Engage with those concepts of good or evil, especially in troubling times like now, or or is that not a necessity? Do you think?
2: I think it's I think it's a, a it's a positive result of a of a work of art. But I my experience has been you don't want to look at you don't want to try it. You know, in other words, a work of art I think has to have the right to be entirely useless, uh, or for the writer not to know what the use of it is. I think most works of art, even very dark ones, ultimately fulfill a purpose of some kind of moral power but my experience has been if that sets out to be your plan you'll make something that's reductive and facile better to open up to the thing via technical means in other words trying to make people and voices that are interesting that are truthful and that are rich and all those things and somehow in my experience if you focus on the technical then the moral ethical like some kind of forest creature will slowly drift out of the woods but if you look directly at it, it runs off. You know, I think the worst thing is some kind of overtly propagandistic work of art, because in a sense, it's anti-art. You know, to say I've got a truth and I want to pull a, you know a truck full of that truth over to you and dump it on you. It uh, closes down narrative
1: sort of, rather than opens it up. It, I guess. Yes,
2: it, it it violates the contract between reader and writer, which is essentially one of intimacy. You know, and and uh, mutual respect. So my sense has been, if I mean, as a person. I'm very interested in good and evil and life and death and all that, but it seems to me you just work on trying to make the fictive reality undeniable to your reader, and all of that will sort of take care of itself more naturally.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: Um, on the subject of life or, or, and, and death, um, I know you've uh, written before about uh, Buddhism and your relationship with Buddhism. Obviously, the Bardo of uh, of linking the Bardo is a t- is a Tibetan word for purgatory uh, or limbo. Um, so, I just wondered a bit about uh, if you could talk a little bit about how your own relationship with Buddhism um, has gone into the book.
2: Well, I think I might have been a Buddhist before I knew what it was uh, <laughs> through through the writing practice. Because essentially, my game has always been: you get up in the morning. You look at what you did yesterday and there's a magic moment there where you try to forget what you thought about it yesterday and you just read it and you sort of see, you know, what the energy of the piece is. To me that's fundamentally meditative. You know, you, you, you go to a party, you think it's gonna be A, it actually turns out to be B. How long does it take for you to lose your connection to the party you thought you were going to and actually at, at the party you're at,
1: constant reincarnation. Uh,
2: yes, yes. <laughs> so that, so that seems to me that predated my actual interest in Buddhism. Uh, and then my wife and I have been aspiring Buddhists for for about fifteen years, and and I'm quite, un- unfortunately, quite casual about it. But uh some of the ideas that I've encountered have been very formative, and also some of the people I've met. You know, the people who are more serious practitioners. And teachers, if nothing else, you know, in this lifetime, I got the sense that there's a range of of ways of being present in the world, from very, very aware, almost beyond one's ability to imagine that level of awareness, to down where I am. Sometimes I think the sacred is just a matter of having us maybe just a few minutes of uh, heightened awareness or heightened spirituality. And then ritually reminding yourself of that for the rest of your life. So I think this book is sort of that. The bardo in the book is not at all the one represented in Tibetan texts. But the book was kind of a way for me just, you know, in a sense, remind myself that death really is coming. And whatever happens there, it's probably not what we expect.
1: Um, Amid such deeply serious themes, I mean, it's it's a brilliantly funny novel, isn't it? Um, Well, I I think it's hugely funny. I love the whole conceit of the self-deluded ghosts um, being in denial about being dead and referring to their, their coffins as sick boxes and to being alive as less sick. Um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about, about humour and, and how you use humour in your fiction and the kind of the, the importance of it, I suppose.
2: You know, I teach writing at Syracuse University here and we have these incredibly great students. So I, I've noticed in my students and in myself that, you know, a person has several gifts that they used to negotiate life, just as as a human being. So in my case, uh, I've always been very emotional, maybe sentimental, and also have been inclined to be funny, just partly because I grew up on the south side of Chicago, where that's kind of the way you express love is by insults. But so early in my writing career, I thought the idea was to suppress both those excesses and try to be more normal, and then discover to actually know that, at least in my case, what an artist does is you know, call out all the things that you are, all the all the strengths and weaknesses that you have, and then somehow through artistic practice, train those things to play nicely, nicely together uh, to kind of co-enable in a certain way. So what I find myself doing in conversation and in writing is to be very earnest, maybe unbearably earnest, and when it gets too unbearable, I puncture it with a joke <laughs> and and vice versa. So it's a, in a sense, it's like riding a bike. You know, you get leaning too far to the left. What do you do? Well... You know, you lean to the right. But having said that, I think it's more than just that. My basic sense of things is that the distinction between funny and serious is an artificial one. You know, you can here in the states. You know, you can walk out of a funeral and find yourself in a strip mall where there's a, you know, a, a Chuck E. Cheese franchise with a, a a guy in a giant mouse costume coming out for a smoke break. You know, so it seems to me that at the highest level. Their tragedy and comedy are sort of artificial distinctions that we put in place to make life more bearable. But in reality, I, I don't feel that separation as much as I used to. <laughs> that's,
1: that's 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 very interesting. So it's, it's not like you start off from a position of earnestness and try and weave the jokes in. It's just that the the whole thing is uh, is inextricably linked, I guess.
2: Yeah, a very a very sad person can fart in an elevator, and, then, <laughs> <laughs> you know. and that would always be funny. <laughs>
1: Everyone has been talking, as you can't help have noticed, about the fact that this this is your debut novel after two fantastically successful decades of writing short stories and journalism and I just wondered what it was that made you want to turn this into a novel or whether this was a novel to begin with and whether there's going to be more novel writing from you.
2: Really you know after all that time I had kind of learned to avoid a certain mode which is um, well it's a mode I would get into when I thought I had a novel in progress and I would give myself permission to sort of Go on and on, you know, to do a fifteen-page section about the closet or something, and I'd gotten into trouble several times with that. So, so my mantra was just always make everything as brisk as possible. Pray to God it's a short story. <laughs> Don't worry about a novel, you know, because the short story is such a beautiful form, and in some ways, it's—I I, think—it's more difficult than a novel, and it, and it might also be a more truthful reflection on human experience. So, when this started, I I really was sort of talking to the book to say, look, please. Just be as short as you can. And actually, the book is only is about 60,000 words. It's, the format kind of pads it out a little bit. But, but that's
1: still much more uh, than a novella. I mean, that is, that's kind of short novel. Yes,
2: like. yeah. I had about a third of it written and really revised and revised. And then I kind of said, well, that, you know, it looks like we're only about an hour and a half into this seven-hour night. So it, it was, in other words, it became a novel with a lot of resistance from me. And uh, my plan when I'm done with this is just to go right back and write a short story. In other words, my stride has always been more short story stride. And as much as I enjoyed this, I, I would have to go right back to that anti-novel position. And ha- you know, <laughs> if another idea comes along and convinces me, I'd be more than happy to do it. But you're,
1: you're not out searching for it?
2: Not at all. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine
0: them getting even softer over time.